It's one of Paul's prison epistles. Why is it called a prison epistle? It's called a prison epistle because Paul wrote it while he was in prison, very simply. There are several of them. This is one. He wrote it from his prison cell. And so frequently, or at least on a couple of occasions, in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I am a prisoner for or of the Lord. And what he means by that is at that moment, he was imprisoned. Before his imprisonment, Paul had an interesting ministry in Ephesus. You can read about it in the book of of Acts. When he got to Ephesus, he found 12 men who were apostles, essentially, or disciples of John the Baptist. And so he began ministering to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they received the Holy Spirit and their lives were transformed. But as with all of Paul's ministry, it would seem... Every place where he brought the gospel and men were converted, that ministry was met by trouble. There were men who said, we don't want the gospel here. We don't want Christ here. But God used Paul to preach so frequently in Ephesus. Listen, that in Acts 19.10, it says, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Wow. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. But what we find is that even though all those folks heard the gospel, many of them heard it, and their hearts became angry. They did not welcome it. And some of them persecuted Paul and the new believers in that town. In fact, one of the major controversies arose when a man from a, a man <clears throat> named Demetrius raised a ruckus. The reason that he raised a ruckus in town is because when Paul started to preach the gospel, some of Demetrius' patrons stopped buying his idols. And so he became upset. He understood that Christianity was going to put him out of business. So he got together with the Chamber of Commerce of Ephesus. And he said, fellas, look what's coming. Christianity is going to ruin our economy. So they ran Paul out of town. But it wasn't just Paul who was derided. It were the new converts as well. We learn, uh, if you flip over to chapter 2, verse 11, you see Paul encouraging them. He says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. You see what's happening. The Jews there, uh, you've, got the, you've, got, uh, you've got these Gentile converts who are starting to call on uh, the Hebrew God, 
They were saying, Abraham is our father. We enjoy the blessings of the covenant that were given to Noah and Abraham uh, and Moses and David. We are partakers in those covenants, those blessings. And the Jews now turning against him and saying, no, you are the uncircumcision. You have no place in those blessings. So what does Paul do? Two things that he's trying to do in this letter. One, he is reminding these believers of their standing in Christ. Even though you are aliens in your own hometown, I want to assure you of your standing in Christ Jesus. And he exhorts them to walk worthy of Christ. An aspect of walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called, we learn in Ephesians 4.1, is maintaining a spirit of thankfulness. How do I, as a believer, exhibit that my home is Zion, the city of God? Well, I do so by maintaining a spirit of thankfulness. Paul exhorted these Ephesian Christians to be imitators of God. That's where we picked up in chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. And they were to do this as beloved children. He's not saying to them, be imitators of God so that you get into heaven. So that he will claim you as his own. No, Paul is saying to them, be imitators of God. Why? Because you belong to him. Young children often want to imitate what their, their parents do, don't they? I want to go with you to work, daddy. I want to watch you do what you do. Pray with me. The Christian who is a new creation, lovingly desires to imitate the God who is his Father. And so this walking worthy comes from his heart as an aspect of his gratitude to God. But imitating God isn't something that comes naturally to us, is it? What comes naturally to us what is born into us is sin. Sin comes naturally. Holiness does not. So it takes effort. It takes forethought. Planning. As we put off the thought life of the former self and put on the thought life of the new self. And what Paul teaches us in this passage is that Christians die to the old self by cultivating constant thankfulness through Christ. You know, your life of thanksgiving, giving thanks, is a way to kill the old self. As you talk to your friends or maybe your family and and maybe you are confronted by difficult sin situations and you're saying to them, Maybe they ask you, how do I overcome this? How do I, how do I put this to death in my life? You say, well, how, are you giving thanks to the Lord? Are you putting on the new nature? 
The first thing that we learn as we seek to die to the old self is that thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian habit. Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian habit. This morning we have gotten together and we're going to share a meal together. Um, We are going to rejoice over what the Lord has done for us. We have sung some hymns that think about giving thanks. Well, that's appropriate for Christians to do because truly only Christians know how to give thanks. As we Turn back to Romans chapter 1. Think about the words of Romans chapter 1 verse 21. Beginning in verse 18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you know one of the, maybe the predominant attributes of being an unbeliever is that you never thank God for anything? Why is that? Well, what would you thank Him for? The unbelieving man thinks that he is the center of the universe. He is a professional at two things. Claiming all of his successes as coming from his own wit and wisdom and blaming all of his failures on someone else. We are all good Nebuchadnezzars, aren't we? We are ready to erect a monument to ourselves and to call everyone else to bow down and worship that monument. The unbeliever doesn't worship God, doesn't give thanks to God because he doesn't have any reason to thank Him. Everything I have is from my own hands. So he congratulates himself for every believing and for every evil he blames someone else. So thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian habit. You, believer, are enabled to worship the God by, your God by giving thanks to Him. When He, by the work of His Holy Spirit, opens your eyes, suddenly you are able to see, oh, this isn't all me. In, in, fact, in fact, if God left me to myself, everything would fall apart. All of my success comes from Him. He is the one who blesses the work of my hands. So giving thanks is a uniquely Christian habit. The second thing that we see from our text in Ephesians 5 is that thanksgiving is a corporate context. It is is right for us to get together and give thanks to the Lord together as a body. 
This is one of the ways that you and I encourage one another to go on in godliness. You see, a couple of things to notice there that, one, your battle against sin and the flesh is not something that you do on your own. Your battle against sin and the flesh is something that you do together as well. Look with me again at Hebrews, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. Notice what's happening here. What is Paul commanding? If we begin in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When they are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what, what's happening? What's the picture there? Well, that's a picture of corporate singing, isn't it? We're singing the psalms. We're singing hymns. We're singing spiritual songs, and we're singing those directed to God, but also to one another. What's Paul saying? Don't use your congregational gatherings for debauchery. In Ephesus, this would have been practical. Because when you get together to worship the primary goddess, Artemis, what are you doing? One of the things you're doing is you're filling yourself up on wine, you're getting drunk, and you're giving yourself over to debauchery. And Paul is saying, that's not what Christian fellowship is. One, it's hard to walk wisely to be filled with wisdom and to be filled with wine at the same time. Instead, encourage one another, singing to one another, helping each other to overcome sin, and you do that through thanksgiving. You see what's happening is each time we get together, we're, we're saying, let's lift up our faces and let's see God. Let's remember all that He has done for us. Let's, instead of giving ourselves over to consuming uh, too much wine, let's give ourselves over to meditating on all of the Lord's goodness. Let's meditate on His bounty and encourage one another in that way. Thanksgiving is a corporate attitude. Therefore, thirdly, thanksgiving is an aspect of Christian worship. Thanksgiving is an aspect of Christian worship. Nobody can give thanks like a Christian can. Because only the Christian is enabled by God the Holy Spirit to recognize that he ought to give thanks. We recognize God's goodness. And as we think about this in context, remember again, what kind of epistle is this? This is a prison epistle. And so what do we find a prisoner of the Lord encouraging others to do at this time? He's not saying, guys, I would really appreciate if you could figure out how to get me a file in a birthday cake. Paul says, walk worthy of the Lord. Give thanks 
And we see him doing this very thing in his own life as we look back to chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. What is characteristic? For this reason, he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul himself, in prison, gives thanks. We find this in the life of David as well as we turn over to to Psalm chapter 3. In Psalm 3, David is on the run from Absalom. His life is being threatened. And what is his practice? He sets his mind upon the Lord. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my my soul. There is no salvation for him in God. And here's how David puts those thoughts off, that fear, that anxiety, that stress, that trepidation. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. See, thanksgiving is an aspect of Christian worship. Why? Because our hearts and minds are set on what the Lord has done for us. We remember that we give thanks not because God has earned it, but because of who God is. We give thanks to the Lord because we are mindful of what our sin deserves. Each and every day as we go before the Lord in prayer, we are reminded of God's holiness and then we reflect on our own sinfulness. And as we pray, we remember that we don't deserve any of the good things of this life, do we? I don't deserve for food to taste good. I don't deserve to to sense some warmth when I put my arms around my loved ones. And I'm enabled to give thanks. Fourthly, we are mindful of what the opposite of thanksgiving is, aren't we? What is the opposite of giving thanks? The opposite of giving thanks is complaining. The opposite of giving thanks looks like Israel. When God has dragged me out of Egypt, and I'm walking behind this old fellow named Moses who's got this magic rod, And God has delivered me from my bondage and set me free to be His forever. And He leads me out into a place that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. And I say, man, I would rather be in bondage. I'd rather be in Egypt. Who is this leader anyway that you have given me? I don't like him. I don't like his judgments. I don't like the way that he does things. 
You see, the opposite of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, is always complaining against Him. Not to give thanks is to doubt God's goodness. Lord, these circumstances surely must show me that you don't like me. It is to doubt God's wisdom. Surely God must not know what he's doing or I wouldn't be at this place in my life right now. It is to doubt God's power. Maybe you think that if God was able, he could change some circumstance in your life or make it better. So you don't give thanks. And you complain. And you grumble. And you murmur. So when Paul is commanding these Ephesian believers to give thanks, you see what he's saying to them. Ephesian believers, you're going to be tempted because your family and your friends have turned against you. You are being called the uncircumcision by the Jews in your, in your city. The people who are in the chamber of commerce are accusing you of wrecking everything. You know, everything would be fine if it wasn't for you Christians You're so morally uppity. And how does Paul encourage them to go on walking worthy of the Lord, not to give in to those temptations? He does it. He encourages them not to give in to their grumbling and complaining by giving thanks. Fifthly, Thanksgiving is given through Jesus Christ to God the Father. Paul doesn't just leave it here. He doesn't just say, give thanks. Give thanks always for everything. Period. Obey it. That's the law. He says, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Only only sincere Christians are thankful people. And our thanksgiving is only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the core of the gospel. As we... As we reflect on God seated upon his holy mountain of Mount Zion, and there he is, and and like Adam after he had been cast out, and he's dwelling at the base of that mountain, looking back up and, and every day remembering Eden is up there, and I could have had that if I obeyed the Lord, if I turned that fruit down and kept uh, walking in faithfulness to the Lord, but instead... All he could do is walk around the base of that mountain and look up and regret and remember. And every day, Eve is also saying, and remember, Adam, if you hadn't eaten, we wouldn't be down here. But what Christ has done for us on the cross is he has taken us by the hand And He has led us back up to the top of the mountain 
to dwell in the presence of the holy, eternal God forever. And so now we can offer our thanks through Him. And that thanksgiving is acceptable to the Lord because of Christ. Christian thankfulness meditates on all that Christ has accomplished. And so I want us to do that just for a moment. Because remember, Paul didn't begin with Ephesians 5. He didn't say, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through, uh, greetings in the name of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and mercy and peace be upon you now. Give thanks. Do it. Paul begins by telling us all the reasons that we can meditate on Christ's goodness and give Him thanks. Let's look at just a few of them. Dear Christian, Paul reminds you that right now, right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right now. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your union with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is so close that where He is, you are too. And not only are you united to God through Christ and seated in those heavenly places right now, but He chose you before creation, we read in verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before you had existence, God thought of you and placed His love upon you. Thirdly, He set His love upon you. He set His love upon you. You say, well, I mean naturally, right? And who wouldn't? I am kind of a big deal. But when we really think about it, we understand that the love of God comes to us despite what we actually deserve. Before you were born, before you had done anything good or evil, before you had a thought, God set His love upon you in Christ. Fourthly, He has adopted you as His child. We read in Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We were thinking about this uh, last time we were in Joel. And we were thinking, okay, here's Israel. They've been cast out of the. They've been cast out of the promised land. God has caused their, their the Garden of Eden to be destroyed. There, it's burned over. It's eaten by locusts and destroyed. And God could easily say, okay, I'm going to forgive you. And here's what's going to happen: you go back into the garden and work again. 
And maybe in time, if you do enough work, if you set your sprinklers in the right place, if you apply enough fertilizer, enough nitrogen, it will give you its bounty again. That's not what God said. I will forgive you and I will give you a lush garden again. Why? Because you're my sons. God has adopted you as his child. Fifthly, he redeemed you with the blood of his own son. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus Christ was led up. He was bound. He was led. And he was handed over to Pilate for trial. And he willingly offered himself in your place. He has forgiven all of your trespasses. Every one of them. Every one of them is forgiven in Christ according to Ephesians 1.7. According to 1.8, he has lavished his grace upon you. He has made known to you the mystery of His will. You know, the unbeliever dwells in ignorance. His foolish heart is darkened, but God in Christ has made you alive. In verse 11, He has given you an eternal inheritance in glory. You see, this is where Paul begins. And in all of these meditations and more, there are nine here, we have infinite reason to go on in thanksgiving to the Lord. Christians die to the old self by cultivating constant thankfulness through Christ. A lifestyle of thankfulness originates in the heart made new by the Holy Spirit through the new eyes that He gives to us, we see the manifold greatness of God, our Creator and Sustainer. The natural impulse of that new sight is to give thanks to Him always for everything through Christ Jesus who is our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.